All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com and Roughneck Scarves. This is episode number 294. There's only one person we can honor with that number, and that is Carly Lloyd. She has 294 caps in her U.S. Women's National Team career so far, getting pretty close to 300. Her first cap came 15 years ago, this month in a friendly versus Ukraine. All right, pretty big episode this week since I was way too swamped with the beginning of Challenge Cup to get one out last week. So mega episode for episode 294. First, had a great chat with my friend John Halloran from Equalizer Soccer. If you're not already reading his writing on Equalizer Soccer, I highly recommend it. Equalizer also has uh, a podcast throughout the Challenge Cup, like every few days. Um, I, I would say that's their best way to, to get the like right after game day thoughts and coverage. But John and I mostly talked about his Challenge Cup thoughts on Chicago's performance as well as Houston, Washington, a few other elements. Um, and I will continue to be discussing Challenge Cup in the next few episodes. Then I had a great chat with Brenda Elsie from the Burn It All Down podcast. We focused mainly on the problems with the media and public perceptions of Colombia's recent Women's World Cup bid, as well as the issues with FIFA's host selection process for the Women's World Cup bid. And we both kind of get off into rants in different directions. I hope, hope you enjoy that. And finally, I spoke to Bo Duray about his latest book, this one all about Woso, called 2012, The Year That Saved Women's Soccer. It's available on Amazon in both print and for Kindle. Um, Bo has been writing about women's soccer for, I think, at least 15 years now, probably longer. Has covered the Olympics, wrote a book on the Washington spirit in the inaugural season. Lots of great stuff out there. So three chats, no Jen Splainer in this episode, but don't worry that Jen Splainer will definitely return next week. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with John Halloran from Equalizer Soccer, both the website and the podcast. John, I, I love hearing that um, you've been stuck at home so long that you've you know been able to do nothing but write about women's soccer and watch <laughs> women's soccer. I mean, is this your all-time dream come true? Uh, it would be a little bit nicer if the games weren't split up so late, but yeah, um, you know, it doesn't really fit with my particular sleep cycle, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it feels a lot. <laughs> I think when they announced the tournament to me, it felt a lot like a uh, world cup summer where yes. you were going to be able to just kind of sit in your living room and watch several games a day and really just fully immerse yourself in a tournament. So I, I have enjoyed that aspect of it for sure. Yeah. And that it's, it's that condensed action where, you know, we're going to have these final standings based on just each team playing four games. Right. So, you know, one bad game and you're out of it, one great game and, and you're back into it. And we're, we're on the verge of, um, the second half, the second group of teams playing their third game. And then next Sunday, Monday, we will have everything, you know, finalizing for the, for the knockout round. I just, I just love that intensity of it. Just like you said, you know, a world cup and it's such a shame that we don't get to see Orlando in it, but there's been 
so many great performances. Um, and, and I love seeing the numbers, uh, like that we're getting for our Twitch, Twitch broadcast, you know, I'm doing the international broadcast and they can see while we're broadcasting, like how many people are watching, how many people are in the chat room. Um, I mean, it's hitting 20 K. Um, and, and it's so many new eyes where it's people right. reaching out and asking, how do I get more information on these teams? How do I buy their merchandise? Tell me more about this player. Are there podcasts? You know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, let's, let's talk about the teams themselves. Um, we're not going to talk about all of them cause I've covered some of them before, but, uh, let's start with the team that had a pretty crazy performance Saturday or sorry, Sunday in, in the second game, that Portland Washington game. I mean, we thought when Haran got that goal, it's like, oh, you know, that's that's the one thing Richie Burke was afraid of was a set piece like that. But boom, a few minutes later, Spirit's right back in it. So, so tell me what you thought about that game and, and their performances in the tournament so far. Well, I think just talking about the set piece goals, we have to mention how spectacular both of them were. I mean, they weren't just – it wasn't like they took a corner and somebody jumped up and headed it in. I mean, Haran – I don't know what she did to, to get her body into that position, but it was absolutely remarkable, uh, this kind of flying header. And then on, on Staub's goal, which maybe was a little bit more pedestrian, the flick from Sanchez to put the ball in that space was, was pretty otherworldly as well. Um, both of these teams, I think, have impressed. I think, you know, we, we talked about this uh, for a quick sec before we jumped on, but it's easy to assume that Portland was going to be good this year just because they've been one of the most dominant teams over the past five years uh, or six years, seven years in the NWSL. But they had nine players leave and nine players come in. And to think that they would be um, as competitive as they are with not only those changes, but also – Tobin Heath not being in the tournament, uh, Adriana French getting hurt, Becky Sauerbrunn getting hurt, and they're still Sophia able Smith. to haven't been able to see Sophia Smith. Yeah, exactly. Nobody could have essentially 13 players from their roster last year. I guess 12 because Sauerbrunn technically wasn't with them, but um, and still compete. Now you could argue that at times it maybe hasn't been the prettiest. But they're still competitive, and a lot of that is, is due to Haran just deciding to dominate games the way she is. But we've seen a little bit out of Morgan Weaver to make us think that maybe she's going to be uh, as good as, as they hoped she would be, using the number two pick on her. And then the other one, the player that I think has not gotten anywhere near uh, the amount of credit they deserve from their tournament is Bella Bixby, who has been yes. absolutely incredible for Portland. Well, what I love about Bella Bixby uh, is her getting an opportunity to play. I mean, it sounds so simple, but when our goalkeeper ranks are so deep, uh, yep. it's hard for someone sitting behind an Adriana French or an Alyssa Nair, you know, uh, to, to get to step in and play and to have waited two years and to find out what two days before the tournament opener that French might be injured and you're going to start and you're not only going to start, but you're going to start against the defending champs. And, oh, yeah, the game's going to be live on CBS. Not CBS All Access, CBS Sports, on CBS. 
Um, I thought she was so composed, so fierce, looked like she had been playing, um, had been the starter for years. So I just, it's those kind of stories that I love to see come out of a tournament like this. The other one from that goalkeeper depth, you know, remark that you had is Abby Smith getting in yes. into the starting lineup for Utah, because this is a player who was on the fringe of the U S national team in 2017 right. and then basically loses her club job and doesn't, doesn't play much if at all for, for two years at the club level. Yeah. I mean, I I'll never understand why once they were out of the playoffs, she didn't even get like the last game of the season, you know, cause she was never injured, but it's just so great to see her back on the pitch too. And again, as if she hasn't lost a step, right. She's not, she didn't look clumsy. She didn't have to bat balls away. She caught them cleanly. Um, you know, just like Jane Campbell in that opener, probably frustrated to give up three, but comes back, turns around, gets the, gets the shutout. So I'm, I'm really excited to see Utah moving forward, right? Like I think a lot of us assumed mm-hmm. with they had some big players depart and a coaching change and kind of a late coaching change, right? That, you know, who knows what would what would happen. But what have you thought of, of their performances so far? Well, I think um, the biggest thing for me is that the formation deciding to play a three back in this tournament um, is, is courageous. And for Craig Harrington to do that in his first head coaching stint is pretty impressive. Uh, it's not an easy formation for players to master. It's one that most of them probably haven't played since they were in the young youth ranks because now flat fours are instituted for most players uh, by the time they're teenagers. So the fact that he's not only brought this formation in, but shown some success with it, um is is impressive and then to take what you know we talked about with the rosters too they lost becky sauerbrunn who most people would say is the best center back in the league or one of the top two or three and kristen press elected not to play so you take away your primary uh defensive weapon your primary offensive threat and then you still come into this tournament and are as competitive as they've been and at times dominating you know i i know that that Houston game ended up in a draw, but for the first 30 minutes or so, Utah was all over that game. And they didn't have Desiree Scott, who's out for the tournament, you know, for family yep. reasons. And she's usually the that teeth in front of the center back that, you know, is, is doing the damage, as, you know, they like to call her the destroyer. Uh, but I think what really surprised me was how great Diana Matheson still looks, uh, you know, back from the injury that kept her out of the 2019 Women's World Cup. I saw a glimpse of, you know, the old Diana playing for Canada in France in March where she came off the bench and and helped Canada battle back to draw Brazil 2-2. But, like, to see her start and and create and finish, um, you know, and combine so smoothly with Vero – and Amy Rodriguez, all three of them in their 30s, right? Like, just beautiful. Yeah, and Vero and A-Rod have obviously looked fantastic. Vero tore Sky Blue's defense apart maybe five or six times with just one pass, just completely uh, put them on their heels, found gaps in behind. But it was interesting you mentioned the the number six role because we should give a shout-out to Lola Banta as well for yes. how well she's played through those first two games. 
Yeah, when we spoke to Craig Harrington before the tournament started about, you know, we got to t- talk to each coach once and, you know, get their thoughts on the tournament. And he's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's tough not to have Desiree, but I want to stick with, you know, the formation we were planning. And, and I think Lowe can do it. And, and she has done a really admirable job. And then for, yeah, been great. Oh, well, and then of course, for my, my hometown team, um, it's probably easier if I ask you your thoughts on them than me just, you know, <laughs> pontificate on them because, uh, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, I knew this was going to happen because of course I haven't been able to attend practices. There haven't been any preseason matches. I had a good feeling about the dash coming into this tournament because, uh, getting to interview a different player each week for the, the dash podcast, um, you know, like, and especially we were focusing on the ones new to the team and they're a lot new to the team, but just the way they would talk about James, the way would they would talk about feeling welcome, feeling happy, excited to be part of the club. Like for me was, was proof that the tide was turning. Um, there's been so many internal changes in the club, not just the competitive side, but the front office organizational side over the last 18 months. But a fan doesn't necessarily see that. The press doesn't necessarily see that. It doesn't, you know, come across on TV. So I, I really feel like the last two games is, is you know, that wave continuing to, to turn. Um, but but tell, me, tell me what it looks like from your end. So here's the thing. I don't think anybody doubted that the dash got better. Everybody saw them bringing Katie Naughton in. Everybody saw them bringing Megan Oyster in. So you look at that and say, okay, their back line is going to be improved and that's going to provide them a good foundation. And obviously they have Christy Mewis and, and Rachel Daly. And, um, but what is impressive is that I didn't particularly think that they would be improved relative to how much other teams also improved especially when you look at which is when you look at how those trades develop you know by bringing in Naughton that's great by bringing in Oyster that's great but they lost Querta uh they lost Watt so you thought well okay they've built their defense better but did they lose a little bit too much in the attack and when you looked at teams you know that had made big moves, right? Sky Blue had made a lot of changes and looked like they were going to be a team of ambition. We know Orlando looked like they were primed to be a little bit better this year. So I didn't necessarily anticipate that Houston was going to catch up to some of the teams that appeared to be ahead of them. One of the things that's really interesting about Houston is if you go on the NWSL website and you go on to their lineup, um, for their last game, and you go through the players that started that match, seven of the 11 players on the dash in that starting lineup don't even have a picture of them in a dash kit. Next to their... <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get an idea of how big the change has been, <laughs> at least to their starting 11, right? You're talking about two-thirds of their lineup is different from where it was a year ago. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't <laughs> the picture paints a thousand words, right? That that just tells yeah. the whole story right there. I I love that. Um, I was emailing somebody about that a couple of days ago. Just in general, it's like uh, still got a lot of pictures on the website of people in their 2017 kits two yeah. or three teams ago. Um, 
Yeah. But no, well, I just shake rooms in a sky blue kit. Of course. Of course. <laughs> right. I mean, you think that's that's not just, you know, last year. That's, that's a little bit further back. But uh, Mo Bryan, or as they say, Gatra, um, she's still in her dash kit on the on the website. Okay. So that's 2017. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I just I I liked seeing how comfortable the dash players were together um, because everybody's been in the same boat in terms of limited ability to practice, having to be stuck at home for that extended period and practicing on your own. And one of the things I was thinking about coming into this tournament is that the teams that will do the best will be the ones that managed that lockdown the best, not once they got to start practicing, but how, how were you keeping your team together as a culture, as individuals, um, as a coach supporting players during that March and April and early May where you're stuck at home and, and going crazy, right? And, and I wonder if Houston had a little bit of an advantage that they didn't have a single player out of market. All of them were in Houston going through the exact same thing. You didn't have somebody that said, oh, I'm going home or, you know, I'm going to go be with my family or, or you know, like or a player that's, you know, injured and, and has gone off in rehab, right? That they were, they were all together. And, and I'd love to hear from all the coaches of like, what creative ways did they come up with on Zoom and, and other media to, to keep teams engaged and active, right? When you really couldn't socialize. And we've seen in the past that that social angle, that team culture angle can be so important, especially in preseason, right? And teams just haven't had nearly as much opportunity to do that. And, and I feel too that, that being sequestered in Utah should build up some of these teams to be stronger uh, than they were coming in. Yeah, you would hope so. I think the, the thing, just again, this is from an outsider's viewpoint, but when you watched Houston in years past, it, it definitely seemed like there was a frustration within the group that, that things weren't going the way that they had hoped. And right. that you don't, you don't see that. You see a lot of joy and you see players that seem excited. And I loved Shea Groom's post-game interview where she was talking about having a chip on her shoulder and how a lot of the players have been traded three, four times and how they um, were ready to show people. And with her especially, because she was a player as far back as 2016 that, Vlatko, when he was the coach of Kansas City, was talking about had national team um, caliber talent. And whether it was her playing in Sky Blue or with the rain, it just never seemed to click. So to see her have a game like she had uh, the other night was uh, was a nice moment for her. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I love it when someone who hasn't gotten attention lately gets that attention, right? Uh, um, I, I think we all have our favorites in this league, but one of the, the things that's so great is any player can have a, a great moment. It's not like there's one star in every team and a big supporting cast. Like, you know, it's, it's so competitive. We've got, I would say, the most competitive women's soccer league in the world uh, that, you know, so, sometimes when I'm making lists, you know, for stats of like, oh my God, could there be any more NCAA champions on the field at one time? You know, or this yeah. game, this game features five number one draft picks or 20 first round draft, that, that, that kind of stuff. Like you have to be at the top of your game. Um, all right. So who else were we going to talk about? We got Utah. We did Houston. 
We did Washington and your hometown team, Chicago. So yep. Tell me about Chicago. It's pretty much exactly what I expected, both based on the changes that they had, uh, their style, and some of the things that, that Roy Dames had talked about heading into the tournament. They obviously took that second game to give a whole bunch of uh, draft picks from not only this year but last year a run out. They fielded what looked pretty close to their first choice lineups in the first and the third game. Right. Um, I thought they were a little creative in the ways that they tried to handle North Carolina and certainly had a better performance the other night than they did in the final. Um, so, you know, we'll see, we'll see come knockout round. I think if Tierna Davidson stays hurt, which is obviously a big deal, you can't take – a center back of her quality out of a team and not have yeah. it affect uh, the squad. But if she stays out, I think the lineup you saw the other day is probably the lineup they go into the quarterfinal with. Uh, the only exception being that I would bet Savannah McCaskill has probably done enough to work her way into the squad. And that probably comes at the expense of, of Rachel Hill. But I think Danny Colaprico getting healthy as the tournament progresses has been really big for them. I think that yes. bodes well for their for their chances because you saw in that first game, and obviously uh, Dames put the put Ertz in the six, which was kind of a disaster because the back line was just a mess without her. But you saw with Colaprico in there, not only does that let you use Ertz deeper, which is good, but it. She is just such a quality player, and she's not a fancy player. She's not a player that you maybe, uh, you know, makes your jaw drop. But if you know the game and if you can appreciate how important a five or a ten-yard pass is in certain situations, how she reads the game, the way that she breaks up opponents' attack, the way she starts Chicago's attack, that's such a big sign for her that she made it. I can't remember exactly. I think she made it into the 60 or 65th minute the last game. That's a really yeah. good sign for them. Yeah. Yeah. By far the most minutes she had played, you know, in, in the tournament. And, and I do like the idea of McCaskill getting, getting a start. Um, she fought so fiercely in, in, in all of her appearances so far has also yep. delivered some pretty good corners and free kicks. Um, you know, so get, give her a shot. You know, that's, that's kind of the beauty of all the teams knowing that they're going to go to the quarterfinals right? Um, as some may consider right. the fight for seeding more important than others, but, you know, at least, you know, you've got that fifth game. So, you know, we've, we've seen some teams experiment more than others. I mean, uh, I love that Rory brought out a completely different starting level, <laughs> right? Like yeah. Yeah. would anybody else do that? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because I was, I was talking to him before the tournament started and he was, he said three games in eight days. And I said, well, that sounds like the kind of game that in the game two, you just completely change the starting 11. And that's exactly what he did. So. <laughs> and he's probably thinking, damn it, damn it. John yeah. knows my plan. Who told John my plan? <laughs> but you know, it's funny you mentioned because the fact that this is kind of a consequence free um, group stage is important because every single year in this league, we have gotten down to the last week or two of the season, and we've seen how one or two points make a difference, Right. whether that's in teams making the playoffs or not, winning the shield or not, you know, having to be 
uh, in a matchup against the one seed versus, you know, the two seed, they don't have a chance. As much as they might like to say that they're rotating or as much as they might rest certain players in certain games, they never really have a true opportunity to just say, screw it, throw caution into the wind, throw a different 11 out there the way that they have the opportunity to do it in these games if they want to. And, and again, having not no preseason, right? Like you yeah. got to get these players minutes. Who knows yep. if they're going to get to do anything else for NWSL this season. Um, you never get a chance really to experiment with a different lineup, especially with a fairly compressed schedule in the regular season where, you know, you come back from traveling, you have maybe two practice days and a rest day and then you play again. Like this, this seems like an extended camp, um, which of course is why we're hearing several coaches rave about it and say, we need to do this more often. Obviously can't probably do all the teams for a month, you know, before each season, right. but we could see, right. we could see more little international challenge cups um, popping up. I'm, um, I'm, I'm really hoping, you know, that Houston could in the future do something with maybe two Liga MX clubs and another NWSL club, right? Just bring them into Houston for a four-team round robin, much like she believes, something like that, you know? Well, uh, we've gotten to see this um, for the past couple of years up in Portland where they've had Portland, yes. Lorraine, Chicago, and the USU 20. That is a fun week to go out there and just watch games because they put the games back-to-back. You get to go out there and watch six games over eight days. You get to see a ton of players that you wouldn't normally see. So it's a very similar kind of vibe to what's happening in this group stage. Yeah, get some good buzz behind it. All right, well, final thoughts on on this Challenge Cup. I'm not going to ask you for any predictions because it doesn't really matter until we have a bracket, right? And and then we got to start some kind of bracket game with all the, the fans out there. But just, you know... Final takeaways from from the games you've seen so far, just the tournament in general. I think in general, the the biggest thing is it, we're going to see North Carolina be the team, and somebody's going to have to figure out a way to beat them. Because unless they beat themselves, unless they have one of those games where they create twenty six chances and just don't finish them, um, I, I really don't know how somebody is going to beat them. We've seen some coaches try some unique things. We saw Washington try to play a really uh, deep possession game to spread North Carolina out and, and relieve that press. We seem to see Chicago try more of a, a box midfield setup late in that game the other day. Maybe Utah's three back could give them some, some matchup issues and create something. But um, I think we should enjoy the group stage games. And then once it gets to those quarterfinal games, uh, I'm, I'm just curious to see how people try to beat North Carolina, because obviously doing it the way that they've tried to do it over the past few years has been utterly unsuccessful. And the teams that beat North Carolina last year, Chicago did it twice, you know, rain did it at least once. Um, Washington did it at, at the end of the season. You know, I don't see rain doing that this year. Chicago and Washington kind of had their chance, but of course, who knows how the bracket will end up. And that's the kind of thing there could be, there could be, you know, like the right team. It could be Utah on a roll that could take North Carolina, but what if they don't meet in the bracket stage, right? It, it kind of adds that, that extra thrill 
of, you know, March Madness, you know, when the Sydney Sydney comes out of like, oh, these people shouldn't be on that side. They should be on this side, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and, and with like O.L. Reign, even as bad as they have looked in their first couple of games, there's a ton of talent. So they could go in to the knockout stage, you know, as a seven or an eight seed and still do something. And defensively, you know, they – they haven't been bad, right? Like, you know, if Murphy has a game like like she had against right. North Carolina in the yep. semifinal uh, where it took them all the way to extra time to win, and for these knockout games, there will be no extra time, you know, that it will go straight to penalties. So <laughs> Yeah, so, that'll, that'll be wild. Yeah, and, and that's the kind of thing, in a way, that's an advantage to a, a team that might be the underdog and not have uh, – the intense fitness mindset of North Carolina, right? Where I feel like in extra time of that semifinal last year, rain, you know, rain got the tie to push it to extra time, but you just saw like, they just didn't have anything left, especially with a depleted roster where, you know, North Carolina just keeps bringing on fresh legs and murdering them, you know? So I, I, I love the idea that, that we're not, you know, going to make people do the 30 minutes of extra time and go straight to PKs because, it can be a frustrating way if you're the player to decide the winner of the game, but oh, it's so fun to watch. <laughs> well, so I, I would say two things. One, you could always do what Sweden did against the U.S. in the 2016 Olympics, which is sit back, <laughs> you're gonna try to get one on the nightmares, counter. John, you're going to give people nightmares <laughs> because even if even if they get the one, North Carolina gets one back. Well, that's still a draw, and now we're in penalties. Yeah, uh, but the other thing is, and and I'm, there's only a few of us out there, but I am an advocate of reinstituting the old MLS penalties, and I don't know if you remember those the from hockey, back in the day, the but style penalties that they yes, did. there's like a 35 yard run up. The keeper, yeah. but give the keeper a fighting chance besides <laughs> these point blank rockets from 12 yards out and a static ball. Make the you forward have see, to... You can still see those those old-style MLS yep. shootouts on YouTube. It's hysterical. Yep. And that was when they wouldn't let games end in a tie. So even in the regular season, if a game right. ended in a tie, they did them, they did those shootouts. <laughs> yeah. Those are fantastic, though. Again, I, I know I'm like uh, uh, one of a handful of people who believe in those, but uh, I absolutely love them. I wish that, that every league used them. Well, see, and, and that's why I, I still have a little bit of love for Golden Goal because, mm-hmm. yep. because you know if you score the game's over that you don't have two right. teams slogging through another 30 minutes to just get to penalties. Right. right? It can be a cruel way to lose, but an awesome way to win. Well, John, thank well, you it's, so much for oh, – It's exciting, right, for the fans. To, a golden goal is like the ultimate moment. Yeah. Because you score and the game is over. Yeah. And you're done. You don't have to keep running and we win. (laughs) Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the tournament. And I'm so glad you're getting to watch all the tournament and keep up the great coverage uh, on the Equalizer website and also on the podcast, of course. Thank you for having me. Okay. 
Okay, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Brenda Elsie from Burn It All Down podcast and also uh, one of my favorite books, Football Era. Um, Brenda, how have you been doing in this crazy soccer-filled and other scary things-filled time? Um, I'm doing all right. New York has been, um, you know, both horrible and now maybe on the other side of things. So... (laughs) you know, very fortunate, all things considered. Well, and and of course, I thought of you a few weeks ago when we finally got the announcement about where the 2023 Women's World Cup was going to be held. Um, we won't even get into how long it took for them mm. to make that announcement. Mm-hmm. But uh, <sighs> there's good things about social media. There's rough things about social media. And it really took me aback to see some of the, the Columbia-fueled ire or ignorance, or I'm, I'm sure there's a better word for it about like, it shouldn't go to Columbia and screw Columbia. And though, I, though I did like the joke of, you know, no, we're not talking about Columbia, the university. Um, <laughs> but I just, but it made me think of you and you had a great tweet of just like, Hey people. Um, I don't even remember what it was at this point, but I just thought, but I was like, Oh, I need to talk to Brenda about this because there's, there's this whole underlying like, yeah, I'm totally excited. It's in Australia, New Zealand. I've been to Australia twice. I love it. I'd love to go to New Zealand. I've heard nothing but wonderful things about it. I know so many of those players because they played in the NWSL. Um, but it made me think more how it's, it's like, how can I judge Columbia and Columbia's bid when I know so little about it? Yeah, and unfortunately, the Colombian Federation didn't help you out very much with that. <laughs> there, there was no women's soccer projected on their main cathedral in Bogota or anything as it was with the Sydney Opera House. So certainly a lot of respect for the organizers and, and everything that they did to, to make such an impressive bid. I guess there's two parts of it for me. One has to do with the FIFA technical report. And the other has to do with um, journalists, some of whom I really respect and admire that cover women's soccer regularly, who made a couple of arguments that I was really uncomfortable with. And this is like notwithstanding the people who can't spell Columbia correctly, because those people's <laughs> comments were just patently horrible and racist, you know, <laughs> referring to Escobar, talking about, you know, underdevelopment, it's somehow uniquely sexist, um, the whole typical stuff. Um, right. But I was, I, what concerned me more was when I read people um, that I think were trying to um, criticize the Federation for its sexism, which absolutely must be done, but somehow made the pivot to say, well, I'm glad Columbia didn't get the bid because you shouldn't reward such a Federation. And that argument to me felt very uh, wrong. Just it, it, it hasn't been used generally. And why would it be used against Columbia? So there was a way in which it was sort of seen as uniquely sexist um, and a way in which there was this effort to kind of, um, I don't know, almost, almost celebrate seeing the Federation going down and not recognizing that the players themselves, you know, players like Vanessa Cordoba, players like former players like Melissa Ortiz, who had come out and explained why it was so important to them and how they wanted to be involved with it and how they saw it. And that, and that 
when you say, you know, they shouldn't, they don't deserve to have it awarded because they're sexist, like, well, then wouldn't that apply to the U.S.? Well, so that was, you that, was <laughs> that was one of my, my, my tweets in that thread was, if you're going to be awarding the Women's World Cup to a federation um, that isn't sexist, then I'm not sure where it will go. Um, <laughs> I don't as, we saw with Fran- as we saw with France, like the draw ceremony in December 2018 was like half of it was about the men having just won six months prior. Oh, you know. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you. It, a lot of these comments are from U.S.-based people. Uh, and here you say, well, you have a federation that in a court of law basically said it's women's soccer players were inherently less capable than it's men's players. That you have other, you know, British journalists wrote a lot about this. And you want to say, really, like what happened to the Super League? You know, the men's league is going to go on. Liverpool's playing, Arsenal's playing, but the women aren't playing. Yeah. So so the idea that there's a federation that really exists that has zero sexism would be like, where in the world is there no sexism? And that's just not going to happen. Now, is Colombia particularly um, corrupt in certain aspects where, you know, sexual assault and harassment have not been reported. They have gone to criminal courts. There is no doubt that there are serious, serious issues with that federation. Um, so it's it's not to not recognize that, but there was a way in which the language was just so, so sort of smug and misinformed. And part of it is because, yeah, the Colombian Federation didn't do a great job putting together its proposal. FIFA replicated a lot of that crazy stuff in its technical report, you know, things like we're really worried about the elevation of Bogota. Like, really? That's that's really what you're worried about? Because men play there all the time, and Bogota is the exact same elevation as Mexico City, where, and if I remember, 1970 was a fairly successful tournament. Enough so to have it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Enough so to have it once again yeah. <laughs> in Mexico just 16 years later. So this isn't, you know, this isn't, like, real stuff. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, there is this sort of colonial mindset of this dangerous mountain country, which is full of drugs and terrorism. Um, it doesn't have the marketing opportunities. Um, so the technical report said uh, that New Zealand and Australia did. Yeah. And, and and I was a little surprised and maybe I shouldn't have been when I heard that, you know, some of the UEFA votes were behind Colombia because they thought it would be a great developmentally and and there's good parts and bad parts to that like because i was thinking it's like no you know the women's world cup should not be a developmental tournament but i think also sometimes that phrase gets misinterpreted because when you think back to where the men's world cup has been placed for the last few cycles it was deliberately put in africa you know 2010 as a way to develop more soccer in that country, right? You're building more stadiums, you're bringing more attention. Uh, Mm -hmm. Same thing for Russia, um, same thing for Qatar, along with, you know, a lot of bribe money, but it's, it's that same, (laughs) like you're, you're taking it to new places. Um, And to be very, very frank, we, we need to remind people that in 1994 or rather in 19, what, 88, 89, when the U S got the 1994 bid, there were a lot of, you know, countries that thought that was a joke. They're like, 
wait, the U.S. is going to get an automatic bid and is going to host the World Cup? Like, why? That's not a soccer country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but FIFA was doing it because they know that the way to grow their bank account is, you know, keep taking the tournament somewhere where you get new registrations, right? Oh, yeah. More, more people playing, more eyes on the game. Um, that World Cup in the U.S. in 1994 remains, all these years later, the most profitable World Cup ever and the highest attended, even though there were fewer games than there are now, right? It was only a 2014 mm-hmm. tournament. So um, I can almost see the, hey, we see all this potential in, in, in Colombia to kind of help the women's game because it does need to be pushed there. Like like you talked about the players, you know, pleading to the media, hey, give us attention, give us attention. Or as we saw during World Cup qualifying, uh, the 2018 Copa America Femenina that, that Chile hosted, they had really great crowds. When mm-hmm. And so, so I do feel like it's this sleeping giant that hasn't been awakened much like we've experienced in the U S right. Like that fan base is, is lurking. No one, just no one's activated it. And, and, and I do think the strength um, that, ultimately gave New Zealand and Australia the bid, like you were mentioning, was all of the marketing elements, the public support elements that they already had in place that, you know, would be wonderful to see Colombia have. Well, because it's already a country that has deep sort of soccer knowledge and history. So this isn't, you know, and women have been playing in Colombia um, I would venture to guess longer than in New Zealand and Australia, you know, 1920. Very likely. And, Very likely. Um, you know, I don't know. Not sure. You never know because people are always are always underestimating how long women have been playing soccer, and they probably do that in Australia too. Um, and so, you know, it already has a deep sort of love of soccer. There's absolutely no reason to think it wouldn't be outrageously successful in terms of attendance. That part seems to me just ridiculous if you look at any national matches. And, you know, people point toward the Women's Professional League there, Di Mayor, and the problems that it's faced. And actually, it's been the government ministries that have come in and tried to really save that league because there's so much animosity from these old entrenched, you know, male club leaders. And so it's got a very strong government support, very strong section, like the mayor of Bogota, who's a big booster. And so it's not, so if you scratch the surface a little bit, the idea that like, oh yeah, there's nobody behind this, these women and it's just going to be a total failure because it's so sexist, just sort of, it just sort of obfuscates and, and it just undervalues the work that grassroots soccer women have been doing there for so many years and how they've gotten their league and how they're fighting so hard to keep it during this global pandemic. So it just felt like, um, I, I think sometimes there are very progressive and good soccer writers that, that cover women and sometimes they just feel like they're doing enough and that that's liberal enough. And I think that they're sort of missing sometimes the, the element of having to work to really understand. It's really easy to just say a place is sexist because they all are. It requires a little more work to figure out who can you identify that is right now that you want to give visibility to is right now in that good fight, you know? 
And right. that's what so I just kind of felt soccer, like. Like you said, you know, soccer is older there, definitely than it is in the United States, very likely older than it is, you know, New Zealand and Australia. And just because we don't know much about those leagues doesn't mean, you know, that they don't have, you know, the grassroots, the passionate players, the, the people that wish they could see it more. I mean, I remember when I first started doing my podcast and I kind of had a throwaway comment about like the Arsenal women's team, you know, they don't have what, what the NWSL has. And, and I got a response from a listener saying, I'm in England, I go to the Arsenal games, you, you know, how do you know? You're just assuming that, you know, it's like, no, they actually have a pretty decent pitch. It's like, granted, they're the only one in the, in the league at the time that does, but it's just like, yeah, don't make an assumption. And I, and I think we tend to do that where it's like, okay, we know NWSL, we know the women's national team, um, especially when you're talking about, um, you know, countries where it's not the same language, it makes it even harder to to follow information. We already know how hard it is to find women's soccer coverage in general, but you're not going to go on a deep dive to find it in a, in a language that, that you can't read. Uh, and right. one, of the th- one of the things I've done in the last couple of years in, in my work for the research desk for Fox for the World Cup in 2018 and the Women's World Cup last year you know, I'm writing bios uh, on on players from countries all over the world, right? And I'm not going to find a lot of great English language bios on Panamanian players, right? Mm-hmm. So I get really good at Googling in foreign languages and using <laughs> Google Translate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have very broken Spanish knowledge, um, but it's funny how it's like, I can even do that now, like in Polish or sometimes in, mm-hmm. you know, in in, in Mandarin, like you, if you find the right phrases and, and just find the right patterns and, and you'll start uncovering some really fascinating stuff. And what I loved discovering before uh, CONCACAF qualifying for the Women's World Cup, Panama had started a league. Uh, they had had one complete season of the league before this tournament was about to start and learning who had been the high scores but also the problems that the league had had because they didn't have good access to field. So they had to play games mm-hmm. at like 10 a.m. on one week and then 6 p.m. on another week. And players were having to bus several hours, stuff like that. So, so teams kept folding and games were being forfeited. So as, the, as qualifying was happening, they were announcing, oh, okay, we've got a new season coming. We've got a couple new teams. Now all games will be played under the lights and they won't be further than this far away. So no one will have to bust more that, you know, it's like that kind of news that I couldn't get them to really talk on air. Right. Like that's right. That's not an easy story during a game. Right. And you don't necessarily have a lot of time when you're, you know, when you're really focusing on, on, on the U S but I, I just, that made me so hopeful that it's like, okay, it's fits and starts, but somebody was going, okay, that didn't work. This isn't helping if the players can't, you know, make it to game. So let's, you know, baby steps. And, and I remember Unique Bailey having such a great tournament, the Panamanian keeper, the 17 year old keeper. And I thought it was interesting that you had a lot of fans going, Oh my God, she should play in the U S. Oh my God, she should go to college in the U S. And to me, it it just showed this complete unawareness of she's a 17 year old from Panama who speaks very little English, if any, and probably has had minimal education. And, and your first thought to her is, oh, she needs to go to, to an NCAA thing, right? Not, not saying she's not smart, but like to, to me, my first thought was, why 
isn't CONCACAF um, subsidizing like two slots per NWSL team for a Central American or Caribbean player to come in and just train, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like they don't have to, um, they don't have to necessarily suit up in a game, right? Like, like it doesn't count against a roster spot or something like that. Right. But a player uh, to be exposed to high level training week in, week out, you know, maybe work on their English and, and, and maybe, maybe that would then become an opportunity to have the, the, the skills necessary to maybe start at a junior college or, or, you know, or even NCAA, right? Like, like, I, I still feel like we're, we're missing the big picture that there's so much potential there and we're not setting up, setting up the pathways. Just like we saw Haiti in the, in Olympic qualifying. Um, oh my God, like their entire team was under age 20. Right. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. like, and, and I think, it's easy to just fall back that American mindset, like, Oh my God, she should, you know, go to American college. I'm like, no, she probably needs to just go straight to the pros, but there's not a good path for that. Yeah. There's, there's not an easy path for that. And you know, um, why doesn't CONCACAF do that? I mean, who knows what is CONCACAF, right? I mean, what is well, I, did, I did when, when I got to meet Karina LeBlanc last year, I did. Uh, I dropped that that idea on her. Good, good. I mean, but let's be <laughs> let's be really honest. I mean, Concacaf, and I'm not blaming this on Karina LeBlanc um, it, at all. And congratulations to her on on new baby. Um, but it's it's not a federation that has played a particularly strong transnational role, right? Um, and you know, so so I'm not. I'm not really holding my breath for CONCACAF to do it, but it'd be great if NWSL eventually gets so much money and so many resources that it's able to, you know, set up something like that. Um, and that would be wonderful. But I mean, all of these, all these questions are, um, are part of what I kind of was feeling like during that whole bidding process. And I think a lot of it is just reinforced by the FIFA report. So one of the things that was also disturbing to me was just the number of, of journalists that said, well, Australia and New Zealand should get it because look at the points on the FIFA report. And you're like, when in women's soccer have we ever trusted anything that they've done? Why this morning? <laughs> Why on June 25th of 2020 am I being sold, you know, <laughs> on the FIFA technical report? Like, you know, check yourself. Like, I felt like this is not okay. When you start putting FIFA out there as, you know, as a, if you're deep into women's soccer and you're saying like, well, this, this just must happen because of a FIFA technical report. You just want to be like, I was just like spinning out of my chair. I was like, when have we ever said, oh, well, thus it must be done. Um, and so it was driving me crazy because I was like, have any of you read the Dagnola report? The number one loss of points came, um, in the marketing category about how the profitability and I mean, say what you will about development tournament. Um, it's also kind of, kind of disgusting, um, when they refuse to give equal prize money and they refuse to recognize the profitability to then turn around and say, you know, we're not awarding it based on profitability. (laughs) It's like, okay. And and especially when, 
I, I mean, there's a lot of obvious examples you can bring up of how they don't market women soccer. Yeah. But to me, the, the, the easy things that don't really cost any money that just don't even enter their consciousness. I so clearly remember, you know, obviously being in, in Moscow for seven weeks for the world cup in 2018 and nowhere, anywhere at any of the fan fests, anywhere I went. And there was so much stuff in Moscow that was branded, you know, world cup FIFA, so many tourists there. Nowhere was there anything that said coming next summer to France. Nowhere, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah. and Fox um, was the only broadcaster of a hundred broadcasters covering this tournament live that on the day of the final actually gave play to the women's world cup. Um, They, they had like, they did a live shot from Paris the day of the men's final saying, join us here next summer. You know, mm-hmm. um, just like like that kind of stuff. They had Jill Ellis, you know, in Moscow talking about it. You know, so it, it's like obviously there's still uh, other issues with with how women's soccer is treated in the U.S. But just like FIFA could have done so much, right? There could have been a whole display um, in one of the fan fests of the history of women's soccer, like I did see in France at Paris Fan Fest, right? But it's like but you could have reached all these other people who might've been like, I had no idea or Hey, France sounds fun. Or, you know, just, or those tickets are affordable, right? I don't have to go into debt to get one ticket to a game, you know, all, all all of that, just not taking opportunity at all. Yeah. As usual. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, the, the other issue that, that FIFA invoked to, to think about Russia for a minute um, was it in the technical report, they, they do paint Colombia as having um, security issues, by which they mean domestic terrorism. And, I mean, that is really difficult. I mean, to say how often my Colombian students, I ask them as soon as I meet them, I'm like, so you've been in the U.S. a few months. How many times have you been asked about Pablo Escobar? And they're just like every damn day. Um, and and it's just Colombia today is not Medellin in 1981. It, it, I, I'm not saying they don't have human rights problems, but the number one is the ways in which they are violently repressing indigenous activists, not drug trafficking. So it's. So off. It's so well, it, it, it's, off. What, it's kind of what media does, and I don't mean social media, but just um, right. it reminds me of what the movie Treasure from Sierra Madre, what came out in the '60s, right? And it was referring mm. to the late late 1800s, right? I didn't see. It. <laughs> but, anyway, but anyway, so it's set, kind of set in the Mexican desert, okay. you know, with, with with these like you know, outlaws kind of stuff. And that's, that's where you get the the famous line of we don't need no stinking whatever, you know. Um, but, but it was something from the late 19th century, but this movie is in the sixties and it kind of just set that perception of, Oh, that's a really dangerous part of Mexico, even though it was something that was 80 years prior. Right. So I, I feel yeah. like, We've seen that ESPN 30 for 30 yeah. document about the two, the two Escobars. You know, anybody that watched the 94 World Cup will remember Andres Escobar, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I uh, 
a few years ago, I had a personal trainer who I was always talking to her about soccer and getting her to soccer. And one day she says to me, she's like, I don't like soccer because I just learned that one one country killed a player because he because he scored <laughs> an own goal. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, could we separate some of these things? And like, uh, yeah. But no, um, and it's terrible. It's obviously like a, a really terrible, tragic thing that happens. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, no doubt, just as George Floyd dying at the hands of police custody was terrible. Right. I mean, these are the terrible things happen in countries. And yes, this was like associated with soccer, but like you need to go to a library. If yeah. all you can think of is the two Escobars and Narcos. Right. It's just not. And, and, and it's exhausting for Colombian people to have to do it for 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 people. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. well, you and, know, and as you mentioned before, we started taping that Colombia has already hosted major events before soccer events and and what they're the host for the next copa america yeah they were sharing it with argentina and it's unclear how that will play out now but yes that was the original idea yeah so it's it's not like they've never done this before and when you think about brazil hosting the 2014 world cup and rio having the 2016 olympics it's not like south america hasn't hosted these things right it's Right. And then in yeah. 2011, you know, they had they had a youth, youth world tournament. Right. Yeah. Um, and that had 20,000 players and an average attendance of 28,000 spectators, which is pretty good. Um, and so they noted that when they sent the letter, because Comebol and the Colombian Federation wrote a letter to FIFA um, right before the decision was made, Alejandro Dominguez is the, the president of Comebol, and they sent a letter, you know, about this and just saying, you know, look, this is a super unfair report. Now, I mean, too little, too late, A, and Comebol, of course, has never allowed a single woman a seat at the table. So, of course, <laughs> you know, using, using, you know, fighting racism to save a women's tournament, it's like, it's got every contradiction in it. So I certainly recognize that, like, uh, ugh, you know, it's certainly not the, the mouthpiece you want, the ball fighting, um, right. you know, the imperialist <laughs> fight. Uh, but at the same time, it's true that, you know, it shocked me when I read all these people saying, just look at the FIFA technical report, you know, and I just almost fell off my chair. Um yeah i looked at it i read it it was pretty appalling you know if Um, this were a tv show we would all say this is ridiculous this is bull this is not you know this couldn't happen in real life yes people this is happening in real life (laughs) it sure is and i mean again when you even say oh wow when we were you know in russia and they didn't announce france and things like that i mean once again just to circle back to the very beginning of the conversation a lot of this, I do think, would have felt different if we would have had this announcement three years ago. Yes, yes. And it should have been done, and it wouldn't have been the same of, I think, rush to then say, whoa, right? Because you got down to that, and then Brazil's out. And, you know, so yeah. some of this was just happening very fast after years of waiting. And um, and the so. very last minute decision to go, 
okay, we'll have 32 teams, which I know a lot of fans wanted, but I feel like FIFA's making that decision to look like they're helping the game without, like, they had initially you know, issued the request request for proposal for 2014, you know, 2014 tournament. If you're going to make the decision this late and you've suddenly added another eight teams in several games, like it's just, it's just really, really poor management. To me, it it tells you the general disregard uh, for the game in general, where it's like on the surface, you're like, look, look, we doubled the prize money. It's 2 million instead of one. It's like, that means nothing to me when you're not promoting it. You know, you're not, treating it the way it should be treated. Absolutely. And I mean, every different confederation has a different way that they qualify teams. Right. And so it is just shocking that you would, you just, for, to my mind, there's absolutely no reason to expand it right now, A. Um, but B, it, it did not in any way show that they even acknowledged how confederations were then going to have to rethink, you know, their, um, their qualifying structure. Right. And right. to my mind that, you know, what that says to me, it says more European teams want it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I mean, that's all I, I just been like, okay, like, you know, so because I just don't, I, yes, I think on, on one hand it's to, it's to sort of look like you're helping and, and I do like seeing 32 teams. So don't get me wrong, but do you need 32 and have you thought through the integrity of a tournament now? Uh, Yeah. Um, Are you going to make sure? Yeah. It's it's just, you can't just flip a switch and add eight teams, like all of the costs associated with that, the marketing the support that all, all that stuff. And of course, Brenda, you and I could go on, forever forever and i don't want to 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 subject the listeners to too much more of of our rant but we will definitely get back on soon because there's so much more along these lines that we could talk about but i do want everybody you know you can follow brenda on twitter she's let me see if i can say right political political politicultura politicultura so it's like politicultura It looks you can just really, search my name. <laughs> yeah, it looks really cool written. <laughs> it really does. And I appreciate, you know, you taking the time to talk and, and keep fighting that good fight, Brenda. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be on as always. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Bo Dewar, as they say. Uh, from what? What what have you not written for, Bo? I mean, you wrote for USA Today, you've written for Guardian, write for Soccer America, you've written books. Is there anybody we're missing? You know, of the traditional, like, big four networks and their affiliates, you know, like ABC is ESPN uh, as well, uh, I guess the only one I haven't written for, oddly enough, is CBS. Because <laughs> I wrote for Fox Soccer. Yeah, I wrote for Fox Soccer for a while. I was with the uh, – I was – essentially ESPN's de facto women's soccer person for about a year or a year and a half. Um, and I've done some Olympic work for NBC. So, uh, so not CBS. They have, they have not called. So, um, well, so, so maybe that's, that's on your horizon. I, I doubt it. 
<laughs> anyway, well, the reason I have Bo on today is Bo just published a book about what else? Women's soccer and a very specific time and place in women's soccer. Um, it's all about the year 2012, but really about a specific league in 2012. It's not really about, hey, the U.S. women won a gold medal. So, so tell me about this book, Bo. Well, it's an idea that I've been kicking around for a little while, and I don't remember what exactly put the idea in my head. But I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, this is an overlooked part of women's soccer history. And it was just kind of fascinating the way it was put together, you know, with these this mix of pro and amateur uh, teams all competing in the same league. And it really was an important bridge uh, between, you know, coming out of where WPS collapsed. And I, I think there's not enough credit given to that period and to the period in the, the mid-aughts where, uh, you know, women's soccer was in pretty rough shape both of those times. Um, right. Following and, the demise of, of WSA in 2003 and then the retirement mm-hmm. a lot of, of a lot of the big names in 2004, whether it was voluntary retirement or forced retirement. And then we didn't have WPS till 2009. You had this kind of really empty window. So we had no pro soccer and the Women's World Cup and the Olympics that fell during that window we're both in China, which means you didn't have people traveling and it was a really tough time zone to watch. So it was kind of like this dark era. And then you had to yeah, launch um, and struggle. And, you know, we're not going to get into all those struggles, um, but mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend that people Google Bo's writing, uh, just, just do Bo Doer WPS and you can probably find some good good articles but 2012 the wps was hoping to go into 2012 ended up having to fold right after they had done the 2012 draft um we could call that draft class the lost class of of, of 2012 so so tell me about what happened um leading into that summer well it was a good bit of foresight from the owners in boston uh and um and chicago and in Western New York, and I found out uh, while doing this in Western New York, Joe Salen actually uh, floated some money to the other teams to help them do this because then the other you know, the other teams were popping up out of the you know WPSL proper, which uh, is a fairly loosely organized summer league, and and, and, you know, and the longest I think the longest continuously running women's league we have in this country, but of course it's, it's, you can call it semi-pro or pro-am where they're not all professional uh, teams or very few professional teams, if any, and, you know, rosters are much larger, teams are much looser and uh, the season's much shorter. That, that way, of course, college players can still play and not jeopardize their NCAA, NCAA eligibility. Right. And so uh, they, got a couple of those teams to come up like the Chesapeake charge uh, out, you know, in Annapolis, Maryland or near Annapolis, Maryland, and then created a team out of nothing in Philadelphia um, just to, you know, get the numbers up to eight. uh, So they'd have a fairly viable league and bet they played a traditional double round Robin, which is, it's pretty rare to see a U.S. league actually do what all traditional European soccer leagues do, which is, you know, home and away uh, every team. And it, it's 
So it it that worked out. Uh, it made things fairly interesting. And for the most part, the travel wasn't too bad because they essentially had a cluster on the East Coast, and then everyone would make one road trip out to the Midwest and hit FC Indiana and Chicago on the same trip. So it was um, it was a fairly neat league. And then at the same time, you had the W League, uh, which had a couple of teams that attracted quite a bit of talent. One was here in D.C. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn came out and played some games, and uh, Joanna Lohman and uh, Leanne Sanderson were here, and a very young Andy Sullivan. Uh, then High Seattle, Sullivan, I guess. High scoring Sullivan. Uh, yeah, she well, she scored in her first game. I don't remember the rest of it. Um, no, I'm saying high school. She must have been in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was in high school. Yeah. There was, you know, it's basically like, so where are you going to go to college? You know, that, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a question you don't often ask at a top-level uh, soccer game. You know, what, where are you going to go to college? <laughs> and, of course, of course um, W League, like WPSL, you know, semi-pro slash pro-am so that you could have – that mix of people who have turned pro and people who aren't pro yet. Uh, w League, of course, no longer with us. Um, but I, I love that the, the book is called 2012, the year that saved women's soccer, because like you said, it is such an important bridge year between the demise of WPS, which was a pretty brutal demise as you know the team the the league was just losing teams each year and not being able to capitalize off that amazing 2011 women's world cup um and being the second league to fail of course the thought is okay we're probably not going to see a league again so right you know with with those two leagues stepping in it kind of gave players uh, especially players who weren't on the national team right like the national team well they just went into residency for 2012 right those those 25 to 30 players had somewhere to go everyone else didn't um without these teams uh so talk about um you know getting information for this book and and some of the the really cool people that you talked to well, I, what, what made me finally bring it from the back burner to the front burner uh, was, uh, hey, we're all in lockdown, and uh, <laughs> and suddenly we suddenly I have a bit more time because I'm not driving kids everywhere, and uh, also some freelance opportunities are not what they were uh, at the same time. So uh, I figured, you know, I've got a little bit more time on my hands. Also, um, I, for the first two weeks, was self-isolated because um, I I had this disease. Um, and so I figured, you know, I might as well do this. And also my thinking was that a lot of uh, a lot of players were going to be bored because they were going to be going into isolation and that, you know, they would be happy to talk with me Um Somewhere, somewhere, and I was. It, it, I, I called it an oral history. I've always been fascinated with oral history um, books and and things like that because I think it's a neat way to tell a story. Just to just to let the people involved uh, tell it. I I didn't quite get enough people to make it. Yeah, I, I had to fill in a lot of gaps uh, with my own research and uh, just going back through uh, game reports. I thank goodness that the Equalizer and All White Kit still have. Uh, you know, all their old game reports up. Uh, right. And, a few other, and of yeah, course, a few the Wayback way well. Machine on archive.org is just so cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put together, you know, as sort of an outgrowth of that, I'm trying to put together a spreadsheet and a document showing where every 
national team player of the 2010s uh, played in, you know, from youth soccer to retirement. Wow. And the Wayback Machine, the Wayback Machine is, uh, is quite handy for that because, you know, um, unless you want to go straight by Wikipedia and um, you really don't. And also, you know, Wikipedia is dedicated and people are updating it. There's still some holes out there. So, yeah, I, um, I, you know, a player has arrived when suddenly a young, young player has a Wikipedia page, right? There, there's still players drafted into NWSL where three months in, I'm like, hey, there's no Wikipedia page for them. Come on, people. <laughs> right. I, I've actually been involved in arguments on Wikipedia about whether to start um, a, a page for someone. You know, it's like, oh, this this page is uh, is set for deletion and i go wait a minute this was a first round draft pick and like, well she hasn't played yet uh, well, well she just okay but <laughs> right and of course the funny thing is they'll take anyone if you play on a national team uh you're there so actually a lot of the players for one of the teams in that summer fc indiana um were a lot of them were Part or Hades national team because they right. shared a coach. It was, it was right. Jack Borkowski. Right. right. And so about two thirds or so of that team uh, were Haitian nationals. And so uh, the person I spoke with for that, Lindsay Zolo, has a Wikipedia page because she has played for Haiti. Nice. So, uh, yeah. And FC Indiana was one of the more interesting ones. And that was because there were so many from Haiti, that was a little bit difficult to find people. And Chef Borkowski isn't, find, isn't tough to find. Um, other people for the team, I mean, uh, oh, go check her Facebook page. And, and then you go, okay, oh, I'm going to be using Google Translate for this. You know? um, so, yeah, the, the disparity of teams in there was fairly interesting because, you know, Boston, when they had their full roster, uh, looked like a pro team. And right. you, know, you had Heather O'Reilly, you had Cat Whitehill, uh, you had Leslie Osborne. Uh, you know that's quite an impressive. You had Kaya Simon. You had the two the Australians. So um, Seattle Sounders you know, with what Alex Morgan, oh boy, Megan Rapino, <laughs> Sydney Larue. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hope Solo. So the four who went to go four of them who went to go play for the U.S. Uh, that summer in the Olympics. Uh, then two more pool players and Stephanie Cox and uh, Keelan Winters. And then Veronica Perez, who you think would give nightmares to all the U.S. players because she's the one who scored the goal in 2010, the game winner that, you know, Against forced the U.S. by Mexico that forced the U.S. to go go through a playoff for the 2011 Women's yeah. World Cup. Yes, yes. Right. To take the long way there, yeah. And that would have been fresh in their minds at that point. I can imagine, you know, at, um, well, Hope Solo was not in that game. Uh, Barnhart was was playing because right. Solo was hurt. But um, right. you know, I can I can imagine you know Alex Morgan sort of you know looking at Veronica Perez on the training ground and just shuddering. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of course, because Morgan, of course, Morgan wound up the hero of that playoff. Right. So right. Know, that was that was her that was her breakout. So um, so all of this, there were so many interlocking threads of this, and of course, the biggest accomplishment was that it avoided a lost generation. And another one of the big spreadsheets I've done, and I'll probably try to make some of these public, was all the players who were in the WUSA in 2003 and all the players who had been capped for the national team who had not yet played in the WSA because they were in college, 
And you wind up with about 100 people who uh, drifted out of professional soccer between 2003 and 2009. Right. Uh, and, yeah, and a couple dozen of them had, had been capped. A few others were probably on the way to being capped. And there was no place for them to go. You were either on the national team or you were in the W League uh, playing for no money. I mean, playing amateur soccer and uh, trying to get training games on the side to make ends meet. And, you know, there were a handful of people who survived through that. You know, um, Lori Lindsay was one of them. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn, uh, toward the end of that period, uh, popped in. But in 2012, the idea was we're not going to have another lost generation. And there were still one or two people who walked away, but you had people, uh, the, the best examples were, um, I mean, Allie Long was also playing for PSG that year. So, you know, it wasn't that big a bridge for her. McCall Zerboni is the one whose quote is on the, the front of the book saying, if not for that year, I, I, I might've walked away. And, and I think those are know, great, both great names to, to throw out there, right? Like Long, even getting yeah. that gig with, with PSG, knowing that, well, she's not going to be seen playing over in France, right? Like we know at the time and, and for a while after that, uh, you know, the U.S. soccer coaching structure was mostly just looking at players playing in the U.S., right? And, you know, Long didn't get her first U.S. national team cap till 2014, Zerboni not till 2017, but, you know, that they were able to keep playing, uh, you know, keep those dreams alive. That's, it's huge. Yeah, and then you had Whitney Engen, who had was very much in the mix, but didn't make it in 2012, uh, played for Howie Blues, which always had a stacked team. I mean, I dug up one of their previous teams that was just all college kids, and it was insane. I mean, it's like Cheney and Ashwin Harris and uh, uh, I think Kristen Press was on that team. Just, uh, I mean, I put up the question. Yeah. Um, recently, I said, if you took all these players and let and grabbed them when they were in their mid twenties and put them up against today's North Carolina Courage, who would win? Um, <laughs> that would be a great and match. that would be a great matchup. I mean, it, it's it's close enough that you could have a reasonable conversation about it. Uh, but Engen, um, you know, she went out and played for Pally Blues and then uh, wound up at Liverpool. And, of course, then she got back into the national. Because Inga was one of those people who was always, well, I'm going to go to law school if this doesn't work. Well, I'm going to go to law school. I mean, like, I think right. finally like, finally the third time she said, well, I'm going to go to law school, she did. And she actually is, uh, I think, just finished law school. <laughs> right, um, right. Well, and yeah, so, so how, would, how would people, you know, that want to read – about that that year and and all the comments from players like you said it's an oral history so it's really all these different people you've reached out to players and also coaches and and administrators uh you know so how do people buy this book uh you can go to amazon search for 2012 the year that saved women's soccer and uh it's there i i people always want to have a hard copy of it as as well so i did uh turn out a hard copy so if you don't like reading on uh reading on a computer yeah. or reading on a kindle you you can't you can you can't get something you can hold in your hands and and read uh, yeah so. I, I always like that better and and i also want to give a plug for for the previous book we talked about Bo. um let me see if i have, have the title right why the u.s men will never win the world cup uh because yep. the chapter on the u.s women 
in there, I think is, is a really great chapter. So even if there's people out there that you might not care about the men's part, I, I think it's important to see the whole picture of, of U.S. soccer. Yeah, and that's especially relevant now that the you know the federation is going without national team income. They're still paying salaries to the to the women's team, right? And and registration fees. Who knows what's going to happen with that? You know, are kids going to be able to play this fall? We don't really know. So a lot of and know, legal and how much is. <laughs> and legal fees, and how much is Nike going to uh, pay, and how much is Soccer United Marketing going to pay? Do they have out clauses or force majeure? And spon- yeah, the- sponsors, because they're not their 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 logos aren't being seen on games and TV and stuff like that. It's it's a really tough time. Yeah, and so you know that that big pile of assets that people kept talking about. Well, first of all, they were already spending a fair amount of it to on player development and coaching development and things like that. Uh, so, you know, how much are those programs going to be hit, especially if they still have to pay out to the, you know, to the current women's national team, you know, if they have to big, make a big payout there, then uh, development programs are going to get cut and that's really going to hurt. Cause in, and that's, in a, whole soccer, that's yeah. a whole different discussion for us to have, especially it, as the, the U.S. women's yep. lawsuit and other legal issues continue, and so maybe post tournament we we can have a great legal discussion about that. But uh, Bo, thanks for taking the time and to talk. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, thanks for taking the time during the lockdown to like investigate all this stuff. You know, I totally feel what 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 you do, or just like just you mm-hmm. and your computer and a deep dive into Woso history. I love it. It, 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 it passed the time, and it was a very productive way to pass the time. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. And this is going to be a pretty straightforward back four. It's all about buying things. I decided to keep this really focused. You guys have enough information about the Challenge Cup and all that. So here are four four areas or four things you need to go out and buy. One, go to nwcellshop.com. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Uh, It's supposed to launch sometime next weekend. Um, So as soon as it launches, if you've signed up, you'll get notice that it's opened and you'll get some special promotions. If you have any suggestions for things you want to see on nwslshop.com, just tweet at nwsl and tell them what you want. Second, uh, I've heard that Ross, and probably this also means Marshalls and TJ Maxx, um, have Women's World Cup jerseys on clearance from last summer's tournament. Uh, If you have never peeked at TJ Maxx or Ross or Marshalls, looked at their, you know, active wear section for men and women, I highly recommend you do it. You never know when some old national team gear or even club gear will pop up. Number three, my almanac, the NWSL keeper notes, NWSL almanac. Um, the only place where all in one booklet is the complete history of this league available in print PDF. You can buy one other or both. Just go to keepernotes.com and click on almanacs. There's also a dash specific almanac. And last recommendation for things that are worth spending your money on. I highly recommend anybody that wants more information about women's soccer, you need to be subscribing to Equalizer Soccer. 
and the athletic. If you can't afford both, pick one. Uh, both off, offer discounts throughout the year. I know Equalizer right now is having a special 20% off sale for one year subscription. So equalizersoccer.com or theathletic.com. Great women's soccer coverage on both. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Big thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, and also Icarus FC. Best place to go if you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas and you want a completely custom kit for your team, check out IcarusFC.com. Many thanks to all of you who've been listening, sharing, tweeting, recommending this podcast to friends. I always appreciate that. And as always, big thanks to Sean and the beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.